0: Hello and welcome. Today I have the pleasure of speaking to James Richardson, a recent graduate from our BSC International Business, and he is currently the development lead at Switchboard, the largest LGBT plus helpline. Welcome, Jamie, and thank you so much for joining us.
1: Hi, Edgar. Thank you for having me.
0: Um, before we start, a few words, if I may. We are recording this podcast in celebration of LGBTQ plus History Month 2022. Indeed, it's the anniversary recording of this podcast series, with the first podcast recorded pretty much exactly one year ago to mark the same occasion. This year's tagline for LGBTQ plus History Month is a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. This resonated greatly with me. While this year, for example, also marks the 50th anniversary of the first Pride March in the UK, and we can recognise quite a lot of progress for the LGBTQ plus community, there remains still a lot to be done. And for me, celebrating as well as making visible the rich diversity of this community is one way in which we may be able to continue our work towards greater equality, equity and inclusion. And on that note, let me turn to our guest, Jamie. Let's start with the Organization you work for, maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit more about what Switchboard is and what it does.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, it really depends how much you want to know. But um, Switchboard is um, a confidential helpline. It's open to the LGBTQ plus communities and beyond. Um, so we're open from ten am to ten pm, three hundred sixty five days a year. Uh, we operate a telephone line, instant messaging service, and email service. Um, So all different kinds of people reach out to Switchboard, those both young, old, they come from all across the UK, from those living in the middle of a big city to those in remote villages. Um, And obviously we know there are many more out there who aren't reaching out to anyone for support. Um, We take roughly around uh, 20,000 calls a year. So that could be the first time someone's ever said that they're gay. It could be from someone who is rejected by their family because of their gender identity. Um, or someone just needing a friend. Um, I know you mentioned that um, uh, Pride's coming up to its fiftieth birthday, and Switchboard's actually one of the oldest LGBT charities in the UK. Um, it's our forty-eighth birthday in March this year. Um, so um, a, a lot, a lot of history there as well.
0: It's interesting, I think, to know that the charity is forty-eight years old, mm-hmm. and with all of the progress that we talk about within that community, that the need seems to not have gone away for a charity like yours?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I mean, we we took our first call um, in the basement of Haslam's bookshop near King's Cross in 1974. The bookshop's still there. Um, so Switchboard at the time was created by queer activists after the partial decriminalisation of homosexuality and uh, 1967, so for people essentially seeking information and advice in the days before Google. So um, Switchboard's, like I said, been there throughout queer contemporary history. Um, and a, a, I mean, really interesting thing is that we can, we've got all the logbooks or all the call logs um, from every call taken at Switchboard. So our volunteers will make a note of the, the details of those calls um, after, after every call, um, and they contain a really rich detail about queer life during police raids, you know, the HIV AIDS crisis. Um, we've, got, um, we've got records in there from the Admiral Duncan, Admiral Duncan bombings, section 28. Um, so whatever the community has asked, Switchboard has answered. Um, whatever it was, Switchboard has really been a lifeline for, for queer people for those 48 years.
0: That's fascinating. I can only imagine the rich history that is encapsulated in some of those things. Uh, And out of personal interest, have people actually gone through and looked through this in more detail and, for example, discovered some trends around how the nature of the calls has changed?
1: Yes, absolutely. I I don't know if I'm allowed to do a a little plug here. (laughs) Um, Of course you are. (laughs) (laughs) But our our co-chair, Tash Walker, narrates a podcast called The Log Books. Um, So this explores the log entries from Switchboard uh, volunteers from 1974. So like we were saying, it demonstrates how we need to really learn from our past. There's entries from 70s, 80s about shame, depression, anxiety, and those are calls that we're seeing today. Um, And it is just an incredibly moving um, uh, podcast, and I I can't recommend
0: it enough. Thank you. Definitely something we should plug. Uh, But for me, interesting in that is that even though times have moved on, there is legally greater inclusion, arguably societal greater inclusion, in particular in many parts of the society society, But certain aspects seemingly haven't changed. And you said that things like shame, depression, anxiety are still at the forefront of many of individuals in that community. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, particularly over lockdown, we saw a huge increase in uh, calls that mentioned anxiety, isolation, depression um, over lockdown as well. I I think LGBTQ plus people were one of the most vulnerable um, communities. Uh, We saw a 65% increase in demand for our services at their height. Um, And I think lockdown just compounded those feelings of isolation and loneliness. You know, people being forced back into the closet, maybe they're moving in with their homophobic or transphobic parents. Um, we, We, interestingly, we saw an increase in demand for instant messaging services over lockdown as people might not feel safe to express themselves out loud, like over the phone in case um they might be overheard. Um, we also saw um elderly people reaching out just to speak to someone. Yeah, so a, a huge um, pressure and increase on uh, the isolation and depression.
0: You kind of jumped ahead in one of the questions. It's very interesting to see, and I think 65% is quite a lot, and I'm sure it says something about... Uh, the need for this particular, in terms of when you go back, but is there even more in terms of in your experience on your insight Are there any particular segments of the LGBTQ plus community that use the service more often than others, or indeed are overlooked and don't seem to be accessing the service as much as other groups?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, so I guess Switchboard is there for the LGBTQ plus community in its entirety, so. As I said before, we get all kinds of people reaching out. We support a lot of elderly people um, who um, are feeling isolated or depressed. Um, we have seen a 42% increase in transgender and gender non-conforming people calling us since the lockdown. Um, so whether that's their treatment being paused, rising hate crimes, misinformation or hate, um, uh, Yesterday's suggested delay on um, conversion therapy by EHRC. Um, I think the trans community is particularly vulnerable at the moment. Um, Very scarily, the the media rhetoric around um, trans people at the moment is very similar to that of gay men during the 70s, 80s and 90s. And it's absolutely abhorrent. Um, And uh, so uh, obviously a lot of that's documented in the logbooks as well. Um, we also get a lot of, um, people coming out. So we, 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 I guess we call it the coming out call. Um, so sometimes just saying I'm gay out loud can be a terrifying first step in someone's journey, their coming out journey. Um, so switchboard can hold that space for that person, which is incredibly special, obviously. Um, and coming out. Slices across all ages, so we we think of coming out as a younger person thing, but there are people addressing their sexuality at all ages. Um, Older people, for example, maybe their kids have left, maybe their opposite sex partner has died, now they feel they can come out. Um, We see things in the media often influence calls that we receive as well. So um, when Philip Schofield came out a couple of years ago now, we, we saw a significant rise in older LGBTQ folk um, calling us and coming
0: out over the phone. Thank you, that's fascinating. I will most definitely follow up some of the logbook work because it seems to be, as I say, really interesting and more importantly, still of such importance. And I think some listeners may not necessarily appreciate the importance of the service that Switchboard, for example, offers around that. Can I move a little bit closer to you maybe and ask what led you to volunteer for Switchboard which I know is that is where you started as a volunteer and of course now you're working full-time for them so maybe you can tell our listeners a bit more about your motivation to volunteer and then that journey to full-time work at this organization.
1: Yeah I mean so I actually first heard about Switchboard through their Pride Skittles campaign so I I'm not sure if, if you've seen this, but you might have noticed that Skittles give the rainbow back to the LGBTQ plus community over pride and their suites and packaging are completely black and white. Um, so I've got a massive suite, too. So this immediately caught my eye. <laughs> um, but a percentage of the profits goes to switchboard from this campaign. I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I, well, the sweets all have different flavors as well. So I definitely recommend that as well as a logbook's another plug. Um, but uh, it's, it's where I first saw the service uh, on the back of one of those packages. And I was working for a, a tech startup at the time. I just moved back from the States, having worked over there. Um, and I was looking to connect with the LGBTQ plus community, having volunteered with several other um, organizations in the past. Um, so the onboarding process for... Um, switchboard can be quite long um, just because they want to make sure that they're getting the right people so it was, was a little while before I got through and um, there's an interview process and you undergo 60 hours of training which prepares you for, for every call um, so there's a cat course which is the first 30 hours and it focuses around um, active listening skills predominantly um, and then I volunteered for switchboard for two to three years before the opportunity arose for a full-time role um, to to lead the fundraising and development strategy. Um, So Switchboard um, has always and always will be a volunteer-led organization. So I really did just leap at the opportunity to be part of another initiative in the organization outside uh, the phone room. Um, It really was a a, a no-brainer for me. Switchboard volunteering at switchboard changes you and as a listening volunteer you're connected to the community to the lives of queer people in the uk um, and sometimes globally in, in a very personal way um so um i remember volunteering at student pride one year and someone came up to the table to say thank you for helping me and just walked away um and i've heard similar stories from other volunteers um, either on the phone, who've received thank you calls or at other events. So, I, d- I think just by landing an ear and providing that space really saves people's lives. And um, often we don't see the what happens after the call. What ha- what's the aftermath of some of those calls? So, um, re- receiving those thank yous and those messages is um, is an incredibly um, precious thing.
0: Can I ask and? This may well be too personal, but what led you to volunteer in the first place?
1: Um, I think I was feeling incredibly grateful and very lucky. Um, I just moved back from the States and uh, I, I was like back around my family again and my, my friends uh, in, in the UK. And um, I just very supportive um, network of people around me. Um, and, you know, a lot of queer people don't have that. Um, for whatever reason, and um, that was probably my most compelling reason. But I, I've always had uh, like a, a desire to to help people. And like I said, I, I had worked with other LGBTQ plus organizations in the past, but nothing that was kind of, I guess, as on the ground as Switchboard in the sense that you're you're working directly with the people that you're trying to help.
0: And I guess there is always a need for more volunteers and individuals to support the organisation.
1: Absolutely, 100%.
0: Thank you for sharing that. And I'm sure it must have been an amazing journey, probably sometimes quite harrowing as well, listening to some of those stories. But I think, as we said, it's quite an important uh, part of that. I know that besides that volunteering, part of your current role, but also part of your volunteering work, is that you do a lot of outreach work in schools, for example. And uh, we have talked about this on a separate occasion, that schools are very much an inclusive place or try to be an inclusive place for the LGBTQ plus um, community. Mm -hmm. Can I ask, from my perspective, coming from a university, as a recent graduate, what do you see sort of as being different in schools compared to how lgbtq plus issues are discussed or managed at university
1: yeah i mean i I would say i I think it's hard to compare schools directly against universities when there's so much divergence across schools and universities nationally so i think i've got a very um, narrow view from my experience in the ones i've interacted with through switchboard um we get requests from both universities and schools to speak with their students um, these are typically led by one teacher or a pride group. So um, for schools and universities, they, they typically engage with us um, and we're almost always happy to oblige. Um, we do talks about microaggressions, sexuality, gender identities, pronouns, um, LGBTQ plus history um, and just the, the switchboard service, of course. Um, there, there are or other organisations like Just Like Us and Diversity Role Models that kind of do a more proactive outreach. Um, And their focus is specifically around LGBTQ plus awareness and visibility and anti-bullying within schools, Um, um, all of which wouldn't have actually been possible in the time of Section
0: 28. And some people forget that it's actually quite recent history.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I think it was... um, wiped from the statute books in 2003 and uh, whenever i go into schools and talk about section 28 like the the kids are horrified that something like that existed um and that most of the time they have no awareness that something like that existed
0: so maybe not all of our listeners will know what section 28 is so if you could give a nutshell sort of summary of that potentially I think it would uh strengthen the impact of the work and what you're talking about.
1: yeah ab- absolutely so I'm, I'm probably gonna butcher the um the the summary but essentially it um made it illegal for teachers to talk about um anything LGBTQ plus related in schools so um I think it was some like something like the promotion of um LGBTQ plus ideology or something. Um,
0: yeah, I think it's fascinating that people think that within the UK this has long been gone, and it is as recent as the early two thousands that this was uh, indeed only taken out by local government and local authorities with who are responsible for schools. Hundred percent, and
1: like half half my education was under Section Twenty Eight, and then the second half you're under the I was under the repercussions of it, and I think um, it was. Actually, when section was repealed in 2003, it didn't mean that there was a sudden influx of um, people talking about queer issues in schools. Um, it really, those those after effects really did stay around. I think really it's only now that we're seeing um, real change. And you'll have to fact check me on this. But I actually think LGBTQ plus History Month was um, founded in 2005 following the repeal of section 28
0: it was it was yeah we talked last year in the first podcast uh, that we did uh, briefly about that and it was in response to to raising some of them although i can't remember the the year uh, exactly so i think it's fascinating and i think it evidences that we have made a lot of progress but indeed uh, some of the stories that you have shared already today sees that we the progress isn't as far as we could have gone mm. and I'm going to stick for a moment with universities and, uh, gonna ask you about some more personal reflections. And mm-hmm. as a gay young man at university, uh, particularly having said that you've done quite a lot of your education under Section 28. Mm-hmm. But for me, what is particularly interesting here is that, um, there's still a large proportion of university students that once they enter the workforce, um, LGBTQ plus students a large proportion of them go back into the closet when entering the job market yeah. maybe tell our listeners a little bit more about your experience at university and it doesn't have to be you know specific about leads or anything specific aspect it would be interesting to sort of hear your reflections on that and why you think that still is the case.
1: Yeah I mean you, you, you're so right it's common for people to go back in the closet and I think that's Something um, we hear time and time again at Switchboard, um, whether they're entering the workforce for the first time, moving to a new company or leaving London to um, a more rural town, for example. And again, I don't think it matters what age you are Um, in this society. um, You can be forced back into the closet at any age. Um, So I um, personally had quite a varied experience when I left university. I worked in the States. Um, for a while for a startup of six people who were spread globally so um, I was effectively a traveling salesman where predominantly I worked on my own and um, I was able to live in queer and diverse spaces um, and then uh, when I moved to London I joined a startup where I was in a tiger team in a larger organization um, and that was quite a shock for uh, little gay me. <laughs> um, so at that time, I didn't quite appreciate how work culture can impact your day-to-day experience, um, your, your motivation and overall happiness. So I'm a cis, white, straight, passing gay man. So um, that obviously comes with a lot of privilege, uh, but the immediate assumption was that I was straight. Um, and so that can be quite exhausting coming out over and over again, particularly when you first kind of join a company. Um, and I think another thing maybe that I hadn't considered was my perception of the relationship between professionalism and queerness. And, um, I think professionalism is quite a funny term because it almost, um, masquerades as quite neutral but it's actually quite loaded Um, and as a concept I think professionalism is racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, classist, all all those things Um, but um, yeah and I I say my own perception because this wasn't something I was explicitly told in any of my previous roles but um, yeah, I, I think uh, that that was something that I conf- had to confront when I joined. And I know, for example, for for others, especially those who are gender non-conforming, um, being closeted at work isn't an option. So um, that's extremely scary for um, for trans and non-binary people um, who are subject to increased workplace discrimination um just based on those
0: enforcements of of binary gender norms and i think it is as simple as talking about yourself your partner's pronouns and assumptions around that that you refer to in terms of the continuing coming out for example that Mm -hmm. just the way Mm -hmm. people assume your relationship status or what you are and i think Many may not appreciate that these things happen because it's not something that they experience on a day to day basis absolutely. Jamie, you talked about work culture. Was there anything specific about that culture, so can you put your finger on what it was that you found irking
1: yeah, so um i think I think at that time um I had heard from homophobic slurs people were using the gay in like a a, a negative way quite liberally um and um w- we got to a point where they they introduced anti-harassment training is about 2 hours long and I was like great um we're we're finally going to get somewhere and hopefully this is going to um directly t- mention some of the issues I've been experiencing um as i said it was it was about 2 hours long and there was not one single mention of um homophobia transphobia um and it, it listed many other things um and uh, there there was even a homophobic slur in there at some point which they they didn't call out um so I was so <laughs> angry. Um and uh I and and quite scared in all honesty. I was like, what does this actually mean about this this company's um this company's uh work culture? Um so I, I met with a HR director who was extremely receptive to everything I was saying. Um and actually based on that, I created a champions network. So skill funding for that or budget i put together a business case for a champions group network which was i think the the heftiest amount of text i've written since my dissertation um (laughs) 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 um but uh yeah and and so on the back of this we created a network of of groups um, procurement policies um hiring changes mentoring programs for for leadership um and when i actually started this I had several other um, queer people come find me at my desk and just to to thank me and and tell me that they thought they were the only queer people at the company Um, which I think is often all too easy in large organizations where you're either confined within the teams that you're working in or there is just that assumption that if someone isn't visibly queer then there aren't queer people there.
0: Thank you for sharing that. And it must have been quite a shocking experience when otherwise you were able to live your life in your authentic self uh, and then experiencing something like this. But it segues me nicely into another question I had, which was all about from your experience, from volunteering, from your work, but also from the sort of narratives and stories that you have have sort of engaged with yourself around these things. What lessons... Have you learned or can you share with, for example, the university, our organisation or indeed any organisation that aims to build a stronger support for its LGBTQ plus community?
1: Well, I think this is this is always a big question, isn't it? And we often get asked this from large corporates who uh, particularly now are trying to build more inclusive environments. And. Um, so we get a lot of our partner organizations raised questions around the topic of pronouns and how we want to introduce the idea of pronouns with um maybe staff members who aren't familiar with the the idea and how we support transgender employees and things like that um i think first and most importantly the support needs to come from the top of the organization if the organizational culture is ever really going to change um and i think Secondly, uh, a more LGBTQ plus workplace or educational space shouldn't become a unpaid second job for queer workers. Um, And like I said before, companies often claim they don't need LGBTQ plus specific policies if they don't, or since they don't have observably lgbtq plus employees um but that might just be a case because people don't feel comfortable coming out um and so i think it's the company or what the organization's responsibility to create a more affirming, affirming environment for lgbtq plus people through conscious allyship um and so yeah i i i think i think organizations just need to understand that coming out at work can be risky and it carries the um opportunity of um huge reward but then it's also quite a scary thing for a lot of people and so i i think i've d i've i've ticked off a few of those things but in summary i would say a, it needs to come from the top of the organisation, and, and B, it shouldn't be a second unpaid job for for queer workers. It needs to have um, resources behind it.
0: I think this is very reassuring in many ways, but also tackles that idea that you said it's quite a big thing to ask, but also to tackle. I think, for me, a couple of things that you mentioned around in terms of declaring... Um, it's a huge problem in large organisations, as you mentioned yourself, actually understanding the your organisation and the diversity within your organisation if people are not willing or feel worried about sharing who they are um, around that. I really love the term conscious allyship. I think we, I'm certainly familiar with the term of performative allyship, so one might argue opposite and more positive aspect around it is that we are conscious allies. and um, I'm sure that's something that I will most definitely use more actively. Uh, thank you. I didn't didn't really wasn't aware of that. And I think the other part that you that you talked about, which I thought was resonates with other diverse groups and communities, is this this reliance or this expectation of those that are the ones being disadvantaged, also having to do the work of moving the goalpost. Um, when i talked to some of our colleagues in mm-hmm. in our black communities i heard and similar things and it resonates uh, quite deeply so thank you for sharing that we didn't talk much about education really here but i think it kind of possibly is not always just the right thing because as you say just having for example harassment training that doesn't mention <laughs> all of the different forms of harassment may then not be necessary but I'm going to come to that because one of the inspirational indeed aspirations of the LGBTQ plus history month is to educate out prejudice is there anything uh, sort of that Mm -hmm. you want to say about this how does it resonate with you is there any particular sort of angle that you have on that
1: yeah I I mean I think um obviously it's important that we celebrate our LGBTQ plus icons and as queer people we have to find out our own history, um, as we mentioned, section 28, um, our our LGBTQ plus history is integral to who we are. Um, it's, you know, the ability I have to walk down the street with my, my partner, um, and queer history is social, it's political, and it's incredibly intersectional and it touches absolutely everything. Um, And I think we mentioned this before, but we we need to study what's happened in our past um, and understand what has come before it um, so we can move forward.
0: Thank you for that. I think for me, I have no further questions. There's lots to think about, lots to pick up. And I actually believe that the quote I started with, that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice, was substantiated in our conversation in that we've shown that the progress that we have made, for example, around Section 28, but recognising that there's still much to do when many of things around shame, depression, anxiety haven't really changed. So, Jamie, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for speaking with us and sharing your insight, your experience. Um, so, very much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you, again.